watch you knocking at my cellar door I love you baby can I have some more oh the damage done I hit the city and I lost my band I watch the needle take another man gone gone the damage done Welcome my friends welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report I am your host James Corbett podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 17th day of May 2009. I'd like to encourage my listeners, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com and subscribe to our free RSS feeds so you can stay up to date with all of the latest articles, videos, interviews, and podcast episodes on the site. And of course, if you'd like to subscribe to our email newsletter, you can also do that at the subscribe button on CorbettReport.com in order to receive emails when new podcast episodes or installments of Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist are uploaded. I'd also like to take a moment to commend all of those listeners who are helping to continue to spread the word about this website and this podcast. Our operation continues to get bigger and bigger by the week, and that's only because of the support of you, the listeners. Once again, thank you to each and every one of my listeners, and I'd like to encourage all of my listeners who have not yet done so to tell someone that you know about this website or this podcast if you find the information presented herein to be of any use. Without further ado, let's get into today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from Infowars.com, May 16, 2009. Bilderberg wants Global Department of Health, Global Treasury. Veteran investigative journalist Jim Tucker has uncovered Bilderberg's 2009 agenda, which includes the plan for a Global Department of Health, a Global Treasury, and a shortened depression rather than a longer economic downturn. Appearing on The Alex Jones Show, Tucker said that former Swedish Prime Minister and regular Bilderberg attendee Carl Bildt made a speech advocating turning the World Health Organization into a World Department of Health, advocating turning the IMF into a World Department of Treasury, both, of course, under the auspices of the United Nations. Tucker noted that such moves would constitute giant steps towards the world government that Bilderberg has set about to achieve, but has been frustrated in finalizing over the past 10 years. Tucker said that Bilderberg are keen on stressing the problems caused by the economic crisis, as well as the threat of a disease pandemic, as a means of justifying centralization of power. According to Tucker, Bilt also discussed global warming in the context of a global tax on carbon emissions, which has long been part of Bilderberg's agenda. The global tax, which will be paid directly to the UN, will be introduced gradually, first of all as a barely noticeable tax at the gas pump, before being hiked up once it is in place, said Tucker. Regarding the crucial Lisbon Treaty, which was struck down after Irish voters said no to its passage last year, Tucker said that Bilderberg were planning to privately send representatives to Ireland to talk to political leaders in an effort to push the treaty through. The EU requires all member states to ratify the treaty before it can be passed, and Irish voters will again be asked to vote in a referendum later this year, despite having already rejected the treaty last year. Tucker said that a key component of this year's Bilderberg Group meeting was an effort to get President Obama to slip through ratification of the International Criminal Court Treaty by forwarding it to the Senate to be voted on. Our second real news story today comes from NewScientist.com, 15th of May 2009. David Attenborough, Our Planet is Overcrowded. The latest venture for this veteran of wildlife documentaries is as controversial as anything he has done in his long career. He has become a patron of the Optimum Population Trust, a think tank on population growth and environment, with a scary website showing the global population as it grows. 
For the past 20 years, I've never had any doubt that the source of the Earth's ills is overpopulation. I can't go on saying this sort of thing and then fail to put my head above the parapet. There are nearly three times as many people on the planet as when Attenborough started making television programs in the 1950s, a fact that has convinced him that if we don't find a solution to our pro population problems, nature will. Other horrible factors will come along and fix it, like mass starvation. Trying to pin him down about the specifics of what to do, however, proves tricky. He says it involves persuading people that their lives and the lives of their children would be better if they didn't exceed a certain number of births per family, and that dramatic drop in birth rate rests on providing universal suffrage, education, particularly for women, and decent standards of living for all. It's a daunting task, but the first step, he argues, is to acknowledge that population is a problem. But isn't the problem solving itself, as people have fewer children and population growth rates slow? Yes, he says, if you discount immigration. The UK's population is more or less static, but it is not so elsewhere. This troubles Edinburgh. Sounding off about high population and fertility rates in other countries can sound patronizing. Or worse. Our third real news story today comes from Infowars.com, May 13th, 2009. Police encourage citizens to report people who drive nice cars. Police in the UK are encouraging citizens to report people who drive nice cars or buy expensive items to the authorities in a new campaign entitled Too Much Bling? Give Us a Ring! The Gloucestershire Force is encouraging members of the public to report people wearing too much bling during the recession. They are also urging people to shop anyone who drives flash cars or buys expensive items without the apparent means to afford them during the credit crunch, reports the Daily Mail. Posters for the campaign indicate that the targets of the Stasi-like crackdown are well-dressed people who own expensive cars, boats, and smoke cigars. Apparently, police in the UK think that actually being middle class and able to afford a nice lifestyle is a sign of probable criminal behavior. Today's fourth real news story comes from news.ino.com, 9th of May 2009. AP sources. Obama wants Fed to be finance super cop. The White House told industry officials on Friday that it is leaning toward recommending that the Federal Reserve become the super cop for too-big-to-fail companies capable of causing another financial meltdown. According to officials who attended a private one-hour meeting between President Barack Obama's economic advisors and representatives from about a dozen banks, hedge funds, and other financial groups, the administration made it clear it was not inclined to divide the job among various regulators, as has been suggested by industry and some federal regulators. The idea of having a council of regulators was pretty much vetoed, said one participant. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner who briefly attended the meeting, but did not identify the Fed specifically as his top choice, told the group that one organization needs to be held responsible for monitoring system-wide risk. He said such a regulator should be given better visibility into all institutions that pose a risk to the financial system, regardless of what business they are in. A Treasury Department statement provided to the Associated Press on Friday confirmed Geithner's position that he wants a single independent regulator with responsibility for systemically important firms and critical payment and settlement systems. Lawmakers are divided on whether the Fed alone should assume the role of systemic regulator. Some say the Fed failed to prevent the current economic crisis and shouldn't be trusted with such a big responsibility. Others say the Fed should stay focused on its primary duty of setting monetary policy. Our final real news story this week comes from Infowars.com, May 12, 2009. YouTube free speech purge accelerates Infowarrior channel banned. YouTube accelerated its aggressive purge against free speech today after the video networking website suspended the Infowarrior channel which was the replacement for the previously censored Alex Jones channel. When attempting to visit the InfoWarrior channel this morning, one is met with the message, This account is suspended. Just as before, no credible reason has been provided for the suspension of channel. 
The original Alex Jones channel was suspended because YouTube claimed that showing a computer printout of a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette news article on camera constituted copyright violation. Despite the fact that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette denied ever making a copyright complaint. The real reason for the censorship is, of course, YouTube's move toward becoming nothing more than a corporate shell for big studio production companies. The company is hemorrhaging money because its current format is not a sustainable business model. However, despite doing what any normal company would do in such a situation and accepting advertising, YouTube has decided to just hand over the direction of its whole content to corporate interests. However, YouTube's decision to ban both the InfoWarrior and the Alex Jones channel has seemingly backfired, with more Alex Jones videos appearing on YouTube than ever before. Welcome, my friends, to episode 86 of the Corbett Report, Medical Martial Law. A new strange virus has emerged. It has appeared seemingly out of nowhere and begun human-to-human transmission. The world medical community reacts in horror at the pandemic possibilities. Doctors and health officials scurry to inform the public of the potential health hazards of such a pandemic strain of influenza. Vaccines are touted as the only hope. Am I referring to the 2009 swine flu outbreak that began in Mexico earlier this year? No. I'm referring to the 1976 swine flu outbreak. Joe brought it home from the office. He gave it to Betty and one of his kids and to Betty's mother. But Betty's mother went back to California the next day. On her way to the airport, she gave it to a cab driver, a ticket agent, and one of the charming stewardesses. At school, Joe's kid gave it to some other kids. And Mrs. Merrill got it and gave it to her husband. In California, Betty's mother gave it to her best friend, Dottie. But Dottie had a heart condition and she died. But before she died, Dottie gave it to her girlfriend, the mailman, the paper boy, and the vet when she went to pick up her chihuahua. If a swine flu epidemic comes, this is how it could spread. You'll want to be protected, especially if you're elderly or chronically ill. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. Yes, that's right. The current hysteria and panic over the swine flu virus is no different than the hysteria and panic that was going on in 1976 over the swine flu outbreak, which began on a U.S. military base, infected a grand total of 13 people, killing one and resulted in an abandoned vaccination program in which 40 million U.S. citizens were vaccinated, resulting in hundreds of paralyzations and dozens of deaths from the vaccine. Now, that's an interesting story that we're going to get into, but why don't we explore some of the history of the swine flu? And let's do that by taking a look at various articles that have uh, surfaced over the last few weeks. Well, let's start with this report from CBC News on the 1st of May 2009. Swine flu roots traced to Spanish flu. Pigs might have spread the current strain of influenza to humans, attracting worldwide attention, but new Canadian-led research suggests that we might have given pigs the flu in the first place during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. A group of Canadian and U.S. researchers, writing in the May issue of the Journal of Virology, say experimental testing of how pigs responded to the 1918 Spanish flu supports the theory that the virus was passed on from humans to pigs in 1918 during the Spanish flu pandemic. Both the human influenza virus known as the Spanish flu and a swine respiratory disease occurred at roughly the same time. The first human cases of Spanish flu appeared in spring of 1918, while the first reports of the swine illness were in the fall of that year. Some strains of swine flu, including the one that has emerged recently from Mexico, are known to belong to the same subtype, H1N1, as the Spanish flu. 
But the classical swine flu virus, an H1N1 subtype of type A influenza virus, wasn't isolated from a pig until 1930, so the connection between the Spanish flu and swine flu hasn't been clear. End quote. So in summation, that article shows that indeed the swine flu virus, in fact, actually had its start in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. And for those of you who are keeping track at home, yes, that story blithely admits that, in fact, in the May 2009 edition of the Journal of Virology, a paper was published entitled Experimental Infection of Pigs with the Human 1918 Pandemic Influenza Virus. And this research article was written by a team of scientists and submitted to the Journal of Virology in November of 2008, accepted in February of 2009, and lo and behold, appeared in May 2009 in the Journal of Virology, just as a swine flu pandemic was sweeping the globe. What an amazing and interesting coincidence. Yes, you can't make that stuff up, and of course, for this document and all of the documents cited in today's episode, please go to CorbettReport.com, click on the Episodes tab, find today's episode, and press Documentation for a documentation list with links to everything cited in today's episode, including this extremely interesting scientific article. And why is this article interesting? Well, of course, what is the Spanish flu? The Spanish flu was a pandemic that broke out, as I say, in 1918, and also had its start on a U.S. military base among freshly vaccinated U.S. troops. The process of vaccinating U.S. troops had been recently instituted, as it was still a relatively new technology at the time, and suddenly a deadly new pandemic of flu swept the world, killing millions upon millions of people. Now, of course, the Spanish flu eventually mutated out of existence, as flus tend to do, swapping genes from incarnation to incarnation as they spread among different hosts, until eventually they mutate into or away from more pandemic strains, meaning that eventually the Spanish flu itself petered out, but not apparently before being transferred to pigs and starting the swine flu phenomenon. So that begs the question, if this is a virus that has not existed for many decades, then how exactly did that research team get a sample of the 1918 Spanish flu to infect pigs with for their research? Well, that answer comes from a 9th of October 2003 article from sunshine-project.org, and I would highly suggest that people go and visit that website to find out more about it, even though it is no longer being updated. It provides some extremely interesting information about biowarfare and the biowarfare capabilities and technologies that have been built up and stockpiled by countries around the world over the preceding decades, the United States first and foremost among them. This article is called Recreating the Spanish Flu, and again it's from 9th of October 2003. Quote, U.S. scientists, led by a Pentagon pathologist, recently began to genetically reconstruct this specifically dangerous 1918 influenza strain. In one experiment, a partially reconstructed 1918 virus killed mice, while virus constructs with genes from a contemporary flu virus had hardly any effect. Attempts to recover the Spanish flu virus date to the 1950s, when scientists unsuccessfully tried to revive the virus from victims buried in the permafrost of Alaska. In the mid-1990s, Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger from the U.S. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology started to screen preserved tissue samples from 1918 influenza victims. It appears that this work was not triggered by a search for flu treatments or the search for a new biowarfare agent, but by a rather simple motivation. Taubenberger and his team were just able to do it. In previous experiments, they had developed a new technique to analyze DNA in old preserved tissues and were now looking for new applications. The 1918 flu was by far and away the most interesting thing we could think of, explained Taubenberger, for the reason why he started to unravel the secrets of one of the most deadliest viruses known to humankind. 
A sample of lung tissue from a 21-year-old soldier who died in 1918 at Fort Jackson in South Carolina yielded what the Army researchers were looking for, intact pieces of viral RNA that could be analyzed and sequenced. In a first publication in 1997, nine short fragments of Spanish flu viral RNA were revealed. There is no sound scientific reason to conduct these experiments. The most recent experiments allegedly sought to test the efficacy of existing antiviral drugs on the 1918 construct, but there is little need for antiviral drugs against the 1918 strain if the 1918 strain would not have been sequenced and recreated in the first place. End quote. That's right, a disturbing article from 2003 detailing the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology's experimental tests to try to reconstruct the 1918 Spanish flu virus, and as we all know, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology could only be working in the people's best interests. Well, of course, there is just one problem with that, and that has to do with biosafety, even if the intentions of the people reconstructing the most deadly virus to have affected the human family in the last hundred years, even if their intentions and motives were pure as the driven snow, well, how about the issue of biosafety? Were they taking adequate precautions in their tests as they eventually did manage to reconstruct the 1918 Spanish flu? Well, the answer to that comes from another Sunshine Project article released on the 21st of October 2003 under the headline, Biosafety Irregularity in Spanish Flu Experiments Highlights the Need to Strengthen Biodefense Transparency. Quote, Genetic experiments to recreate one of the most devastating viruses of the past century were not reviewed or approved by a biosafety com committee. The University of Georgia claims that it was too troublesome to convene its International Biosafety Committee to review research to genetically reconstruct the Spanish flu. Instead, the university signed off on the experiments based on ad hoc talks between only four members of its Biosafety Committee. As a result, no minutes were taken to describe safety review of the experiments. In fact, by not convening its committee, Georgia's actions ensured that there was no timely opportunity to raise concerns at all. The case demonstrates a severe weakness in the public disclosure provisions of federal research rules, the NIH guidelines, and underscores the need for mandatory committee level or higher review of research projects with disease agents. End quote. So, of course, it wasn't really worth the trouble to convene a biosafety review of the experiments reconstructing the most deadly virus to be known to mankind in the past century. Indeed. Well, that was the 1918 Spanish flu, and I guess some people might consider that a thing of the past, even though it's now being resurrected Jurassic Park style to haunt us once again and is being used to infect pigs for virology studies by uh, Canadian researchers. And just as they're releasing their results, a new swine flu strain has emerged. Well, we'll get more into the new swine flu strain in a moment, but again, let's take a moment to look at the 1976 swine flu outbreak. For some basic information on that, let's turn to an article by Paul Mickel of the Trentonian uh, under the headline 1976 Fear of a Great Plague. Quote, On the cold afternoon of February 5, 1976, an army recruit told his drill instructor at Fort Dix that he felt tired and weak, but not sick enough to see military medics or skip a big training hike. Within 24 hours, 19-year-old Private David Lewis of Ashley Falls, Massachusetts was dead, killed by an influenza not seen since the plague of 1918-1919, which took 500,000 American lives and 20 million worldwide. Two weeks after the recruit's death, health officials disclosed to America that something called swine flu had killed Lewis and hospitalized four of his fellow soldiers at the army base in Burlington County. The ominous name of the flu alone was enough to touch off civilian fear of an epidemic, and government doctors knew from tests hastily conducted at Dix after Lewis's death that 500 soldiers had caught swine flu without falling ill. Any flu able to reach that many people so fast 
was capable of becoming another worldwide plague, the doctors warned, raising these questions. Does America mobilize for mass inoculations in time to have everybody ready for the next flu season? Or should the country wait to see if the new virus would, as they often do, get stronger to hit harder in the second year? Thus was born what would become known to some medical historians as a fiasco, and to others as perhaps the finest hour of America's public health bureaucracy. Only young Lewis died from the swine flu itself in 1976. But as the critics are quick to point out, hundreds of Americans were killed or seriously injured by the inoculation the government gave them to stave off the virus. End quote. And for more information about the vaccine program that was instituted in the wake of that swine flu outbreak in 1976, let's turn to Time magazine, which ran an article on April 27th of 2009, How to Deal with Swine Flu, Heeding the Mistakes of 1976, which reads in part, quote, In February 1976, an outbreak of swine flu struck Fort Dix Army Base in New Jersey, killing a 19-year-old private and infecting hundreds of soldiers. Concerned that the U.S. was on the verge of a devastating epidemic, President Gerald Ford ordered a nationwide vaccination program at a cost of $135 million, some $500 million in today's money. Within weeks, reports surfaced of people developing Guillain-Barre syndrome, a paralyzing nerve disease that can be caused by the vaccine. By April, more than 30 people had died of the condition. Facing protests, federal officials abruptly cancelled the program on December 16th. The epidemic failed to materialize. Howard Markle, director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan and a historical consultant to the CDC on flu pandemics, says the most vexing decision facing health officials is when to institute mass vaccination programs. Vaccines carry risks of complications, leading to agonizing ethical dilemmas. In 1976, Ford offered indemnity to the vaccine manufacturers. But according to reports, President George W. Bush decided in 2002 not to administer a nationwide smallpox vaccination program, despite Vice President Dick Cheney's belief that doing so was a prudent counterterrorism step, because it could have resulted in dozens of deaths. The smallpox vaccine kills between one and two people per million people inoculated. Markle says the political climate in the U.S. is much less combustible today than in the post-Watergate era when Ford faced a skeptical public. Even so, he says, citizens still need to trust that the government is working for the greater good. He says, the good news is that our surveillance, methodology, and public health professionals have never been better. But we are human and mistakes may be made, as happened with the 1976 swine flu affair, and we may jump the gun in the hope of preserving life. The current outbreak is a situation in flux. The American public has to be forgiving and patient and do their part too. End quote. <sighs> Think for a moment what you have just been told in that article. Ultimately, what you're being told is that Although the government's decision to implement a mass vaccination program to try to inoculate all 220 million Americans in the wake of the 1976 swine flu pandemic killed 30 people and paralyzed hundreds of others. And even though the smallpox vaccine kills one or two people for every million people inoculated, and by the way, those of course are government-cooked numbers, we should still trust the government when they want to implement a mass vaccination program and do your part as well. Because, of course, we all know you are mostly responsible for things like flu pandemics. Of course, it's not the vaccine manufacturers that could possibly be responsible for a flu pandemic, right? Well, maybe wrong. How about this headline from PrisonPlanet.com, May 4th, 2009. Professor, descendant of H1N1 virus, accidentally released from lab. Oxford says, release probably related to vaccine experimentation. Quote, 
A professor at the Royal London Hospital told NPR today that the descendant of the current H1N1 virus was accidentally released from a laboratory during experimentation. Professor John Oxford stated that the strain of H1N1 that appeared in the 1970s was probably released accidentally from a laboratory, probably in northern China or just across the border in Russia, because everyone was experimenting with those viruses at the time in the lab. Oxford told NPR that he didn't believe the release was malicious, but came as a result of some flu vaccine research that broke out of containment. End quote. But, of course, as we know, the flu vaccine manufacturers in 1976 were given indemnity by the Ford administration for the creation of the swine flu vaccine. So, again, vaccine manufacturers can do no wrong, even when some of their experiments accidentally just jump out of the lab. Another pretty clear example of just how accountable the vaccine manufacturers are to the government regulators who are in the back pockets of the vaccine manufacturers comes from the story that unfolded earlier this year from March 5th, 2009, PrisonPlanet.com. Accidental contamination of vaccine with live avian flu virus virtually impossible. Let's read from this article once again because it is an absolutely incredible case that has been followed up on in none of the controlled corporate media. Quote, Czech newspapers are questioning if the shocking discovery of vaccines contaminated with the deadly avian flu virus, which were distributed to 18 countries by the American company Baxter, were part of a conspiracy to provoke a pandemic. The claim holds weight because, according to the very laboratory protocols that are routine for vaccine makers, mixing a live virus biological weapon with vaccine material by accident is virtually impossible. The company that released contaminated flu, flu virus material from a plant in Austria confirmed Friday that the experimental product contained live H5N1 avian flu viruses, reports the Canadian press. Baxter flu vaccines contaminated with H5N1, otherwise known as the human form of avian flu, one of the most deadly biological weapons on Earth with a 60% kill rate, were received by labs in the Czech Republic, Germany, and Slovenia. Initially, Baxter attempted to stonewall questions by invoking trade secrets and refused to reveal how the vaccines were contaminated with H5N1. After increased pressure, they then claimed that pure H5N1 batches were sent by accident. This was seemingly an attempt to quickly change the story and hide the fact that the accidental contamination of a vaccine with a deadly biological agent like avian flu is virtually impossible and the only way it could have happened was by willful, gross, criminal negligence. The fact that Baxter mixed the deadly H5N1 virus with a mix of H3N2 seasonal flu viruses is the smoking gun. The H5N1 virus on its own has killed hundreds of people, but it is less airborne and more restricted in the ease with which it can spread. However, when combined with seasonal flu viruses, which as everyone know are super airborne and easily spread, the effect is a potent, super airborne, super deadly biological weapon. As the Canadian Press article explains, while H5N1 doesn't easily infect people, H3N2 viruses do. If someone exposed to a mixture of the two had been simultaneously infected with both strains, he or she could have served as an incubator for a hybrid virus able to transmit easily to other people. End quote. So here we have Baxter, vaccine manufacturer, accidentally shipping out live avian flu viruses to be mixed with H3N2 easily transmissible human flu viruses to be put in flu vaccines. And not only is there no criminal investigation and indictment of the people responsible for this unbelievable gross criminal negligence, which could have resulted in a pandemic and, for all we know, did result in a pandemic. Because, of course, readers of my article on governments and biowarfare will be well aware that this new, never-before-seen 
H1N1 swine flu virus is in fact a mixture of European, North American, and Asian bird, human, and pig flus, which suddenly and spontaneously developed in Mexico. Yes, that's right. Apparently someone in Mexico had the gross misfortune to be exposed to and infected by three or four different strains of the flu simultaneously, developing this new virus out of whole cloth. Indeed. So what punishment does Baxter get for this? Well, as I say, no criminal investigation, no indictments, no public outcry, but they do get this. Baxter to develop swine flu vaccine despite bird flu scandal. Infowars.net, April 27, 2009. A U.S.-based pharmaceutical company that just weeks ago was involved in a scandal involving vaccines tainted with deadly avian flu virus has been chosen to head up efforts to produce a vaccine for the Mexican swine flu that has seemingly migrated into the U.S. and Europe. Baxter confirmed over the weekend that it is working with the World Health Organization on a potential vaccine to curb the deadly swine flu virus that is blamed for scores of deaths in Mexico and has emerged as a threat in the U.S., reports the Chicago Tribune. Baxter has previously worked with governments all over the globe to develop and produce vaccines to protect against infectious disease or potential threats from bioterrorism. After 9-11, Baxter helped supply stockpiles of a smallpox vaccine, and in 2003, the company was contracted to develop a vaccine to combat the SARS virus. In 2006, the UK government announced plans designed to inoculate every person in the country with Baxter's vaccines in the event of a flu pandemic. However, Baxter has a very recent and most disturbing connection to flu vaccines. As reported by multiple sources last month, including the Times of India, vaccines contaminated with deadly live H5N1 avian flu virus were distributed to 18 countries last December by a lab at an Austrian branch of Baxter. It was only by providence that the batch was first tested on ferrets in the Czech Republic before being shipped out for infection into humans. The ferrets all died and the shocking discovery was made. End quote. And now Baxter is currently working away trying to develop that new swine flu vaccine that's going to arrive just in time for us to all be vaccinated for the new flu season in the fall. Because as we're being told every few minutes in the controlled corporate media, the swine flu pandemic hysteria might be dying down and it might, might not turn out to be such a deadly strain after all, but... Of course, the new flu season is just around the corner, and when it comes in the fall, there's the, still the possibility that millions will die. Well, that I think traces in a very, very short and condensed way the arc of the last 90 years of pandemics, or swine flu pandemics at any rate, and some of the disturbing trends in that arc. Another story that I think is pretty important at this juncture came just recently from The Age out of Australia, theage.com.au. Swine flu may be a lab error, Aussie researcher. Quote, the World Health Organization is investigating a claim by an Australian researcher that the swine flu virus circling the globe may have been created as a result of human error. Adrian Gibbs, 75, who collaborated on research that led to the development of Roach's Tamiflu drug, said in an interview that he intends to publish a report suggesting the new strain may have accidentally evolved in eggs scientists used to grow viruses and drug makers used to make vaccines. Gibbs said he came to his conclusion as part of an effort to trace the virus's origins by analyzing its genetic blueprint. End quote. Now, I would like to think that the foregoing might give someone pause for thought before they willingly line up to get the H1N1 swine flu jab when it becomes available. And you know what? I think people might actually be paying attention to this kind of information. Because this is May 13th, 2009, Reuters reports the following under the headline, Fewer than a third in the U.S. would get swine flu jab. Quote, Fewer than a third of U.S. adults would get a shot, especially made to protect against the new H1N1 swine flu virus, according to a poll released on Thursday. 
And I'll let my readers read that article for themselves, but basically, yes, fewer than one-third of Americans are willing to get the H1N1 swine flu jab. So again, this is a very encouraging thing, as it shows that perhaps people are actually thinking about what it means to be putting experimental and new vaccines in their body, and potentially mutating viruses into even deadlier strains, which is what, of course, happens when we insert new viruses into our bodies, even if they are attenuated. But given such resistance to the idea of a swine flu vaccine, how could the American people, or the people of any country in the free and democratic Western world, be made to accept these vaccines? Also in Massachusetts, the legislature is acting rapidly on a bill updating what the state can do at a public health emergency. That bill has languished on Beacon Hill for some time, but with the flu outbreak, it's now racing through the legislature. NECN's Josh Brugadier is at the State House in Boston tonight. Josh? R.D., the state Senate passed this bill, Bill 2028, today. They did so unanimously, and it gives the governor and the health commissioner the power to act in the public's interest in case in any kind of medical emergency. Timing sped up a hearing and ultimately unanimous Senate approval of the Pandemic and Disaster Preparation and Response Bill in Massachusetts. The bill gives the public health commissioner the discretion to respond to an outbreak like the kind going on in Mexico, to close or evacuate buildings, enter private property, isolate or quarantine people, and to get and distribute meds and vaccines. A registry of Massachusetts volunteers would be created and would be activated in case of emergency. Plus, the commissioner could request personnel from other states. The bill also protects health care workers from liability. Concerns about the spread of swine flu meant lawmakers, such as Worcester County Democrat Richard Moore, didn't want to take any chances. It's too bad that we have to have something like that pending to get us to finally act, but uh, we were, this was actually on, on the calendar before that became a news story, but so it's, uh, it's not that it's totally that, but it does give us another, another reason why it's a good idea to have this on the books. NRD, the bill has actually passed the Senate a couple times the past few years, but has never passed both the Senate and the House. The House is expected to take up the bill sometime this week. Josh, any penalty if you don't follow the emergency declaration rules? It can actually get to be a pretty severe penalty because for each day someone didn't follow a rule. For example, if somebody was asked to be quarantined and they decided not to follow that, it could be a fine of up to $1,000 per day they didn't follow and also up to 30 days in prison. Josh Brogadier on Beacon Hill tonight. Thank you. Now, obviously, martial law is an issue that we've been addressing on the Corbett Report podcast for some time and, of course, in various articles and videos that we've also created in the past. But medical martial law is an issue that not many researchers have been devoting a significant amount of attention to, with some notable exceptions. But to trace the idea of medical martial law, or the idea that government can quarantine and force medicate people against their wishes in the event of a public health emergency... Of course, we can trace the roots back to those fevered and panicked days in the wake of 9-11, when the idea of bioterrorism was very much on the tips of many people's tongues. And in the wake of that horrendous attack on the United States, and of course the anthrax attack, which later turned out to be from Fort Detrick and was eventually pinned on Bruce Ivins, although, of course, there are some very big questions surrounding that. But at any rate, in the wake of all that panic, something called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act was drafted by something called the Center for Law and the Public's Health at Georgetown and John Hopkins Universities. Now, this was done in conjunction with the Center for Disease Control, and as its name would suggest, it basically serves as a model for states to use to draft up their own emergency health powers acts. And in fact, the uh, Center for Law and the Public's Health, which can be found at publichealthlaw.net, likes to brag that this particular model act has been now implemented and adopted by over 40 states in the Union. So it's quite an influential document. And what does this document say about things that the government should be able to do in the event of a, pu of a public health emergency? Well, section 603 of the document under the heading Vaccination and Treatment reads the following, quote, 
During a state of public health emergency, the public health authority may exercise the following emergency powers over persons as necessary to address the public health emergency. A. Vaccination. To vaccinate persons as protection against infectious disease and to prevent the spread of contagious or possible contagious disease. 1. Vaccination may be performed by any qualified person authorized to do so by the public health authority. 2. A vaccine to be administered must not be such as is reasonably likely to lead to serious harm to the affected individual. 3. To prevent the spread of contagious or possibly contagious disease, the public health authority may isolate or quarantine, pursuant to Section 604, persons who are unable or unwilling for reasons of health, religion, or conscience to undergo vaccinations pursuant to this section. End quote. Yes, so basically in layman's terms, either roll up your sleeve and take the shot, or they're going to lock you in a room somewhere, or perhaps even in a camp with the other people who won't take their shots. Now, of course, this addresses some very fundamental issues about the existence or lack thereof of actual freedom, and the times and situations in which the government can come in and force people to do things against their will. Now, I think every reasonable person would admit that there are reasonable situations in which a reasonably acting government could reasonably use reasonable procedures to make people act reasonably. But this is not a reasonable world. And we have to, if we are being fully serious and looking at these issues in the full knowledge of what has happened in the past, question the motives and motivations of governments that will lie to us time and time and time again. Of course, such questioning was conducted by Michael Chosodovsky of globalresearch.ca in an October 2005 article called Martial Law and the Avian Flu Pandemic. Quote, The threat of the avian flu pandemic is real. Until recently, national governments and the WHO have dismissed the seriousness of the crisis. The public has been misinformed. The issue has been barely mentioned by the media. Why all of a sudden is avian flu on the presidential agenda? The issue was placed on the agenda of the president's White House press conference. There was nothing spontaneous in the White House journalists questioned President Bush, which explicitly pointed to a role for the country's defense assets in the case of a pandemic. We are not dealing with an off-the-cuff statement. Both the question as well as Bush's response calling for a greater role for the military, had been prepared in advance. The statement of President Bush suggests the enactment of martial law in the case of an avian flu outbreak. Martial law could also be established, using the pretext of an outbreak of avian flu in foreign countries and its potential impacts on the U.S. In other words, the military rather than the country's civilian health authorities would be put in charge. End quote. Now, this story, of course, leads in a pretty obvious line of historical continuity to the September 2007 article from PrisonPlanet.com under the headline, Bush Greases Skids for UN Pandemic Power Grab. Best-selling author wouldn't put it past globalists to release virus to capitalize on control. Quote, the World Health Organization and the UN have been handed complete control over response procedures in the event of a pandemic outbreak in the US after an agreement was signed by President Bush at the recent SPP meeting that bypasses congressional approval. We've now got a North American plan for avian and pandemic influenza, and what this plan does is it puts US, Canada, and Mexico under the World Health Organization and under the United Nations law and control, should there be any health emergency, best-selling author Jerome Corsi told the Alex Jones Show on Friday. Corsi said it was blue helmet time should such an emergency arise, and that the origins of the agreement could be traced back to 2005, when President Bush announced a new international partnership on avian and pandemic influenza to a high-level plenary meeting of the UN General Assembly in New York. At the recent SPP meeting in Montebello, Canada, an agreement was signed that establishes UN law along with regulations by the World Trade Organization and World Health Organization as supreme over US law during a pandemic 
and sets the stage for militarizing the management of continental health emergencies, writes Corsi. End quote. Now, there's no doubt that a pandemic, whether real or imagined, whether naturally occurring or manufactured in a vaccine laboratory, whether accidentally released or released on purpose, no matter how such a pandemic or even the perception of a pandemic were to play out, it would play into the hands of the globalists seeking to centralize control and seeking to erase borders for their global governmental institutions. Of course, the World Health Organization is going to play a very important role in any international pandemic, as one would reasonably expect if this were, again, a reasonable world. But of course, in an age where the World Health Organization, the UN, the World Trade Organization, and others are seeking to bring global health regulations in line in such a way as to outlaw public health freedoms and to institute such things as Codex Alimentarius, one could definitely not say that this is a reasonable situation. And as we have seen the preparation and build-up for martial law in the entire Western world over a period of decades, we know that such a situation could not end happily for the average citizen. Just as the creation of a global governmental financial control body will only play into the hands of those seeking to create global government, so a global health emergency can only play into the hands of those seeking to create global governmental controls. And to think that there are not going to be some very significant tests of this type of governmental intervention, military and otherwise, in the lives of average citizens as the result of future pandemics and outbreaks, one need only look at the ways in which this current swine flu panic, again, only resulting in a handful of deaths, there have already been substantial moves made to implement medical martial law, not just the passing of that act in Massachusetts. For one indication of that, we can turn to ComputerWorld.com, April 30th, 2009. If flu threat rises, CDC wants pandemic coordinator in workplace. Another indication for those who might think that this is solely an American issue comes from an Australian article from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation at abc.net.au from April 28, 2009. Mandatory detention laws for flu sufferers. And, of course, we also have the North Bay Nugget reporting from a Canadian perspective that talks about how the North Bay Perry Sound District Health Unit is setting up flu centers, which will in fact be mass vaccination centers in the event that emergency rooms become overwhelmed by pandemic flu cases. Again, of course, all of these stories and many, many, many more that we don't have time to get into today, but which I leave you to research for yourself, are just data points in a trail that start to form a picture a picture that shows us a very bleak future if and when the governments of the Western world decide to pull the trigger on the pandemic martial law scenario. Again, of course, part of the martial law process, which we've outlined in previous episodes of this podcast, is to indoctrinate and gradually acclimate people to the implementation of martial law. So it's to be expected that the first implementation, or the first two or three implementations will be small-scale and generally seen to be mostly effective, although of course there will be much hand-wringing in the media by people pretending to be on our side who will say that perhaps it's going too far to force people into vaccination scenarios or to quarantine them against their will. But eventually, of course, the whole media process will serve only to further cement in the minds of the general public that such steps are necessary. And eventually, by the time the public is acclimated to the idea, then all it would take is the release of a biowarfare agent, whether from a real bioterrorist group or, as is more often the case by the government, it will be used to affect the full-scale implementation of what they are only beginning to test out at the moment. And of course, just like a martial law scenario that would play out in the event of a terrorist attack, a martial law scenario in the wake of a pandemic attack 
could only be pulled off if a sufficient percentage of the public were unaware of the ultimate game plan. And of course, that game plan is exactly what was talked about in today's first Real News story from Jim Tucker reporting from this year's Bilderberg and revealing that, yes, indeed, top of the agenda is how to exploit the swine flu hysteria to further strengthen the World Health Organization and implement world health regulations. So once again, the swine flu hysteria, which has been fed and fed upon by the controlled corporate media and has sufficiently served to raise public hysteria, is, of course, another stepping stone on the way to global government, just like so many other issues have been exploited in exactly this way. So what then can we actually do about this? Well, of course, forewarned is forearmed, knowledge is power, and we have to inform others about what is really going on. And an absolute cornerstone of this research is the understanding that the vaccines that they're going to try to use in the event of the next pandemic are more likely than not going to hurt people than save them. And we have to expose that by exposing some of the very troubling information about vaccines presented in today's episode. The fact that Baxter shipped out live bird flu to be mixed in with regular flu for the flu shots should be something that we should be screaming from the rooftops to anyone who will listen. That is one of the key stories that shows that even if this was a complete accident, in which case it would just be gross criminal negligence, the fact that it hasn't been touted, it hasn't been cited, it hasn't been written about or talked about in the controlled corporate media is itself a sign that there is a very troubling disconnect between the real world and the world that we are being fed through the TV news and the newspapers. The fact that the Baxter company has been ac accused of specifically trying to start a pandemic should be, in any reasonable world, the front page headline on every newspaper in the world until some accountability is to be had. But of course, as we know, vaccine manufacturers are given all sorts of indemnity against claims from people who have had ill effects from their nauseous substances. We have to break through and get people to realize that the vaccine manufacturers are very often the cause of the problems, not the solution. And, of course, the 1976 swine flu vaccine is a good example of that. And the recent revelation that this swine flu may in fact have been developed in a vaccine experimental lab and just accidentally released should be another thing that draws the public's attention towards the fundamental issue of biosafety, which is something which is never mentioned in the news reports. It's always the general public who don't wash their hands or who, or who don't take their flu shots that are to blame for millions of deaths. At this point, I leave you to go out there and do your own research, but of course, get that research out to others Without exposing others to this information and waking them up to what is really going on, we will not prevail in this fight, and medical martial law will be implemented. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week, and I invite you to join me again next week for episode 87 of The Corbett Report. The UN doesn't love you.
Okay, so let's look at some of the examples. Sure. We're talking about closing schools, which I'm sure people would understand. Closing the border to Mexico. Stop us from gathering in public spaces. We mentioned movie theaters. Uh, off there goes the top. freedom to I assemble. Mean, I, I can think of a lot of other things like church, um, other maybe going to the mall. Well, what about what about legislatures? What about the U.S. Yeah. Congress? What about uh, uh, courts of law? What about not impaneling juries because we don't want to have public yeah. uh, assemblies?